Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we're going to be talking about the Portland Trailblazers, and I'm here with Evan Dial. And Evan, how are you today? I'm great, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And let's get started with the Portland Trailblazers by talking about their offseason, which was one of the quieter offseasons in the league. But they did at least shake up their rotation with a pretty sizable trade. They sent Alan Crabb to the Brooklyn Nets in return for Andrew Nicholson, who was immediately waived. Crabb actually played the third most minutes of any member of the Trailblazers last season. But judging by their records so far this year, it doesn't seem to have hurt them too badly to be without that major minute player off the bench in Crabb. But what were your thoughts on the deal for Portland? Well, the deal was essentially a salary dump, right? Uh, Portland was in over the cap. They gave the big deal to Turner the summer before. So this was just trying to shed some relief um, in case they wanted to sign or trade for Carmelo Anthony, which I know they were interested in the offseason. Crab, you're right. The record is about the same, but I would still say they definitely miss his shooting at times. And they have some holes at the three right now, which we'll talk about later. Uh, so I get why they did it, and I think it was needed for financial reasons, but there's definitely some nights where I think they miss his shooting for sure. The tough part with Crab is that if you're looking to compare him and Evan Turner, obviously Portland would much rather have gotten rid of Turner than Crab if it were a straight salary dump, but the Nets were actually the team that signed Crab to that initial offer sheet, and clearly they still had interest in him even after his first year on that deal, probably not living up to those $18 million a year expectations. But with both Crab and Turner in the fold, one of them was almost bound to get minimalized. And clearly last year, the team thought Crab was a more valuable piece than Turner. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, look, and I get why the Nets uh, had their eyes. I mean, he's a perfect Brooklyn Nets because that team just shoots a million threes per game. And that's Crabs, uh, you know, that's his game. And Portland, they really had no choice because you're not going to be able to move Turner with that contract unless you add something juicy to it. So it was really a move of necessity for Portland. The other thing that the Allen Crab trade has allowed the Blazers to do is give a lot more playing time to Pat Connaughton, who's actually been pretty impressive in that role so far this year. But we'll get to talking about Connaughton more later. The Crab deal was basically the only real sort of free agency move that the Trailblazers made, but they did draft a couple of intriguing big men. And let's start with the player that they drafted first, who actually came in another trade. The Trailblazers had three first-round picks in the 2017 draft. They packaged two of them, number 15 and number 20, and sent them to the Sacramento Kings for number 10. Number 10 turned into Zach Collins, 15 turned into Justin Jackson, and 20 turned into Harry Giles. Giles has yet to play this year, still recovering from injuries he suffered at Duke, and his career has sort of been derailed by injuries after he was either the number one or number two prospect in his high school class, depending on who you asked. But overall, the Blazers might have been able to use those picks for depth pieces rather than going for someone like Collins. But on the other hand, they sort of took a swing for the fences with that pick, and we won't really see how that turns out for the next 
couple of years. But Collins has at least played a little bit so far this season. And what have you seen from him in that time? Right. So I, I liked Collins in the draft. Obviously, he had a, a slow start to the season with injury and not a lot of playing time. But from what I see now, I like he can shoot a bit. Uh, he's got three-point range, even though he doesn't take a ton of them. He runs a floor. He can block shots. And he's got a pretty nice post game. Obviously, he has ways to go. He's got to fill out his body, get stronger. Defending in space has been an issue. But, it, I mean, it was a real, it was a bold trade for the Blazers to make. They needed more depth, and they had three first rounds to make it. Maybe it's a sign, you know, about Nurkic long-term and what they think of him. But uh, I, from what I've seen, I think Collins is definitely an intriguing, worth developing, and has a fair amount of promise despite a relatively slow start so far. I guess my biggest question with Collins is whether he can play power forward at all because he really does seem like a center prospect and the kind of player that hopefully can turn into the ideal athletic stretch five that everybody in the NBA is desperately looking for these days. But given that the Blazers just made the pretty major trade for Nurkic last year, and it worked out so well down the stretch of last season, do you think the Blazers maybe saw Collins as more of a 4-5 combo, or do you think this is some sort of statement about Nurkic's future in Portland? I think you're probably right. They probably at times saw it as a 4-5 combo. He played some four in college at Gonzaga, and he's used to playing with more conventional big man. So they're probably looking for that and, you know, a backup to Nurkic in the meantime. And then hopefully long term, if Nurkic doesn't work out for whatever reason, uh, I'm sure Collins is planned to be the replacement. So, I mean, you don't know for sure, but I would guess I think Portland kind of wants him to be able to do both. And for him to play the four, though, he's going to have to improve his shooting, which I think he will be able to and just learn to defend in space better. But I think maybe down the season, I'm interested to see if they try playing them together a little bit more as the season goes on. Collins might not end up turning into a 4-5 combo, but someone who certainly seems a lot more equipped to be a 4-5 combo, at least at this point, is Caleb Swanigan. And I was pretty high on Swanigan going into the draft just because I thought his floor was very high. I thought at minimum with Swanigan, you're going to get someone who hustles for rebounds and is really good at grabbing rebounds and also someone who can be a bench center and maul opposing bench bigs. And so far this year, he's definitely shown flashes of that, but I've been somewhat surprised by his inconsistency because especially in his sophomore year of college, he seemed like the kind of guy that would give consistent effort and consistent results every night. No, yeah, I agree. And I liked uh, a Swanigan in the draft too. Uh, you get tremendous physicality. He's a real, I mean, he's a strong dude. And rebounding is the thing that usually translates the most from college to the NBA. Um, good start. And, I, you know, he had a great summer league and preseason, uh, played a bit at the beginning of the year. Has kind of been benched since then. And I, you know, I'm just not sure if he's a guy, the inconsistent minutes, you know, he's going to need some playing time to really improve. But right now, I'm just not sure Terry Stotts trust him. And that just may be because, you know, Portland is still kind of in a win now mode. And we'll talk more about that later, more than developing young players. 
But uh, despite the, the recent benching, I'm definitely still very high on Swannigan and would love to see him get some more minutes as the season progresses. I think there's also an element to which Swanigan might be benched mostly because of his defensive struggles. Yes. And the most surprising thing about the Trailblazers so far this year is how good they've been on the defensive end. And that was the area that Swanigan was expected to struggle with coming out of college. And when you get a guy who's coming into the league as a defensive question mark, and basically every rookie is at best an average defensive player, but most players, and especially big men, take a little bit of time to figure out the NBA on the defensive end of the floor. It might just be the kind of issue where, as you mentioned, they are kind of a win-now team, and their defense has been surprisingly good so far. Maybe Stotts doesn't want to mess with that early success by playing Collins or Swanigan major minutes when they're still trying to figure out how to play defense at the NBA level. No, I think that's a good point because defense is what's winning Portland games right now. Not Their offense is only like 22nd, I believe, and their defense, as you mentioned, is 7th and one of the surprises of the year. So they know, I mean, no, it's not what people expected, but they're going to have to win games with defense, and that's why you're probably seeing less miss for the younger guys, Collins and Swinigans, because – Right. Most, I mean, nine out of 10 rookies just stink on defense because the NBA is hard and you'll need time to adjust and, you know, learn the nuances of it. But uh, I, I expect him to get a little more minutes later down in the season, but I get why he's benched now for sure. All right, let's move on from the off season and into the look at the season. And I wanted to start by looking at some of Portland's best and worst games so far this year. And if you're talking about best games for the Trailblazers, you have to actually start with opening night where they absolutely demolished the Phoenix Suns in the biggest win in franchise history. And yet somehow saying the biggest win in franchise history doesn't quite do it justice. It was a 124 to 76 final score. The game was played in Phoenix and I don't think Portland's looked as good on either end of the floor as they did in that game at any other point this season. And we already just talked about how surprisingly good their defense has been. They just absolutely shut Phoenix down and put up a ton of points on them. And that game was, if not the primary motivating factor, then certainly a pretty strong piece of evidence as to why Earl Watson ended up getting fired three games into the season. Right, and as we learned, that game was more about the Suns than the Blazers. I mean, Bledsoe won it out. Watson got fired. Um, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like that game. I mean, everyone gets up for their their home opener, and the Suns were just, I mean, dead and disinterested. So, yeah, I mean, that was crazy. The Blazers won by that many points on the road on a home opener. But, uh, yeah, since then, I mean – a lot of their games, I mean, they've won some close games, which is good. But when you look for complete efforts on both ends of the floor, they've they've rarely put it to all together this season, which is concerning. On the one hand, it is concerning that they haven't really put it together as thoroughly as they did in that Phoenix game on both ends of the floor. But on the other hand, it is at least encouraging that they've been able to stay sort of 
right in the middle, despite the fact that their offense has very, very clearly not lived up to expectation. Yeah, and it's what they've done defensively from where they were last year is absolutely remarkable. I believe last year they were in like the 21st range on defense. So to make that big of a jump is great. And most nights they are you know have a really good defensive effort. So that's been the more consistent part of just their their offense has really been, just been come and go this season. And if we're talking about their defensive effort, one game that really stood out to me was their November 13th game against the Denver Nuggets. And the Trailblazers only scored 99 points, which usually if you score 99 points against the Denver Nuggets, you're going to lose by double digits. But they managed to hold the Nuggets, one of the best offenses in the league. And last year, they were actually the best offense in the league after December 15th. They held the Nuggets to 82 points and 33 points after halftime. And especially given the increase in pace and three-point shooting this season, it's rare to win a game at all when you don't crack the 100-point barrier. And it's particularly rare to win by double digits against an offense first team in that sort of situation. But Portland really held it down on the defensive end against one of the better scoring teams in the league. And right now, the team that they're competing with for the fifth seed in the Western Conference. Yeah, it shows what they're they're capable of. And uh, you're right, to hold the Nuggets, a very good offensive team, to 82 points is incredibly impressive. And it's a game that, that could definitely matter towards the end in terms of tiebreaker and seeding. Uh, all the West teams, you know, four through nine are so incredibly close. So it's a big win versus a division rival. And hold them to 82 points, it's awesome. And probably their best defensive game of the season. So now that we've talked about some of the team's better games, let's go through a couple of their less impressive performances, let's just say. And I wanted to start with their November 22nd loss to the Philadelphia 76ers, where the Sixers beat them by 20, and Portland only managed to put up 81 points, including a dismal 14-point first quarter. And... Philly outscored them by 12 points in that first quarter, and it wasn't really close again after that. And the thing that was really shocking about that game was C.J. McCollum's performance, which was impressive in the way that you don't want a performance to be impressive. Uh, Yeah, his worst game of the year. I think he was like a ridiculous like one for 15 or something. Uh, Really, only Damian Lillard showed up that night. He had a big game with like 29, but... Everyone else was awful. They got down by like 100 points, it feels like, within 20 minutes. I believe the Sixers started on like something like a 22 uh, kind of start. Um, yeah, they just didn't have that night. I don't remember it was a back-to-back, but I remember watching that game and their energy from the jump was just horrendous. And then CJ, who's had a bit – still a very good year, but down from last year, had – his worst game I've probably ever seen him had since he's been a starter, just didn't have it that night for whatever reason. So CJ actually only shot one for 14, so a little bit better. But <laughs> the game started out with a 16-0 run yeah. by Philadelphia. And it's impressive to me that Portland actually managed to outscore them for the rest of that quarter. But when you start out of the gate with a 16-0 run, you're basically done from that point unless you're 
I don't know, the Golden State Warriors, and you decide to try after halftime. Right, yeah. I mean, starting down 16 nothing on the road against a, a solid team like the Sixers, it just – it's mission impossible from there. So uh, definitely one of the more disappointing efforts for Portland this year. So the other unfortunate game for the Trailblazers that I wanted to talk about actually came only a few days before that awful loss to the Sixers – And in that game, they held the Sacramento Kings to 86 points, which isn't that impressive given that the Kings are the worst offense in the league, but they only managed to put up 82 points themselves. And this game was pretty solid from both Dame and CJ. Dame put up 29 points on 24 shots. CJ put up 19 points on 16 shots. The rest of the team just didn't show up at all. And the Trailblazers ended up shooting 37% from the field and 28% from deep. And while the Kings are certainly better on the defensive end than they are on the offensive end, anytime you lose to the Kings and only put up 82 points is going to be one of your worst performances of the year. For sure. I mean, the Kings the Kings stink. And just losing to them is just a very bad look in 82 points. And I know they're a little better defensively, but that's that's awful. But I think that game kind of spoke to the bigger issues of Portland. I mean, you know, Dame and CJ show up, but who else does? And it's not even like they don't show – like no one showed up el- like at all. Just absolute nothing from the supporting cast. So – it's kind of been an issue for the season that you saw in that one game, just a real bad loss for them. And the worst part about that loss for people who aren't Kings fans, so, you know, not me, the Blazers were outscored by four points in the fourth quarter, and they lost the game by four points. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just brutal. And, I mean, you just you have to win those kind of games you're supposed to beat the people that you're supposed to win and try to steal a few and that's you know that's what matters when it comes to a tight playoff race so that was definitely a real bad loss by the Blazers thankfully for them though they did make it up literally the next night when they played the Kings again and beat them by 12 so at least they managed to recover from it thank goodness (laughs) if they lost that uh, a home and back to back home and home with the Kings. I mean, that would have just been just horrendous. So thank goodness they rebounded. Yeah, why don't you twist the knife just just a little bit more? Sorry. Just, <laughs> no, I, I I get it. I've seen enough Kings to get it. Let's yeah. <laughs> move on to talking about the big man rotation and something that's been interesting to me about the Blazers so far this year is how many people they've started in the front court this year, because I would have thought that after the Yusuf Nurkic trade that their front court was pretty much locked in, but there's been a lot of movement at the forward positions around Nurkic. And some of that is due to injury, mainly Al Farouk Aminu missing a solid chunk of time. But given the number of changes that the Trailblazers have made in that front court so far this year, which two front court players do you think are the best fits in that starting lineup alongside presumably Dame, CJ, and Mo Harkless? Well, I think Aminu is definitely the key. If you look at all their lineup numbers, they simply just play better when Aminu is on the floor. So I think that's why that injury was so big for them. I mean, the starters, I think, you know, they have it right with Amino and Nurkic, even though he's 
Nurkic has slipped a little this season after such a great second half to last year, but I do think those are the best options for five. But in terms of rotation, I would like to see Amino with Ed Davis probably a little bit more. I think those guys play really well together, and Davis as a backup five. It's a bit of a crowded front court, and obviously now they want to get uh, playing time for Collins. But uh, I like when they bring in Davis for Nurkic and then play him with Aminu. I think um, those two definitely play well together. And something else potentially worth noting is that Davis fits really well alongside Zach Collins to sort of cover for his weaknesses. Yes, Davis isn't always the best defensive player, but he's certainly a lot more apt on that end than Collins. But more importantly, he's just massive, both obviously he's a tall human being, but he's incredibly built and unlike Collins, really can't be pushed around inside. And so if you play the two of them together, it doesn't really matter who's the four and who's the five. You just sort of put Ed Davis on the bigger dude and have Zach Collins play on the less potentially harmful matchup. But that's a lineup that the Blazers, I don't think, have put out on the floor as much as I would have liked to see. Uh, I agree. The numbers with Ed Davis and Collins together have been very encouraging. And you're right, Ed Davis takes the tougher cover, whether it be the four or the five. Uh, Zach Collins can you know, shoot a little bit, so Ed Davis has you know more room for rim running and some post-ups. And I think... And Ed Davis, as you know, is long, can block shots, just like Collins. So I wonder if they go in forward, if they take at once both Aminu and Nurkic and they start playing Ed Davis with Collins a little more. I think they should. I've liked how they played together so far. And we haven't really discussed Noah Vonleh at all, but he's actually started more than half of his games. And that was something that was interesting about this team last season is that Vonley would actually start quite frequently, but barely ever played above 20 minutes a game. Last year, he started half of the season in Portland, started 41 games out of 74 he played, but barely cracked 17 minutes a game. This year, he's up to 19, but it still seems like Stotts really likes to play Vonley in that minimal minute starting role at power forward. Yeah, and I I think I kind of like him. I like Aminu starting at the four with Nurkic and Vonley off the bench. I think Vonley, you know, is better in that instead of just being like the token starter. Vonley's looking better this year. I think he's more aware defensively. He's got a nice mid-range jumper. Uh, he's shooting better inside. So I definitely think he's worth a little more minutes, but it's it's kind of a problem in Portland. They have a, a crowded front court. It's tough to find minutes for everyone, but he probably, the way he's looked this year, deserves you know a few more minutes than 17 per game. And lastly, the person who's basically the odd man out at this point, even though technically he's averaging more minutes per game than Zach Collins and Caleb Swanigan, Myers Leonard, who really has failed to live up to the expectations of his four-year, $44 million contract so far. Do you think the Trailblazers are just going to tie him to the bench? Or do you think they're going to try and look to move him, even though there doesn't seem like there'd be many takers for him, especially given the contract he's on? 
Yeah, Myers Leonard's in a tough situation, and I actually think he's looked better this year. You know, never been super high on him, but stretch fives that can you know that can shoot are always intriguing. So my guess is Portland will try to trade him before the deadline, even though, as you said, it'll be tough for that contract. But look, right now, he's he's just kind of the odd man out in the front court with, I mean, he's behind Nurkic and now uh, Collins, plus Vonley, Davis, Aminu. I mean, just a ton. So there's simply really not room right now. They may have to attach like a second round pick or something to move him. But I I would be more surprised if he was actually on the Blazers after the deadline than not. I'm. I'm pretty sure he just feels like he's a guy who's going to be traded. All right, let's move on from the big man rotation into the wing and guard rotation. And when you're talking about wings and guards for the Portland Trailblazers, you kind of have to start with Dame and CJ. And they've obviously had quite a bit of time at this point to get used to each other's games. But one of the most interesting themes of both of their play this year has been something that we've touched on a number of times throughout the podcast so far, which is the really surprising improvement for them on the defensive end of the floor. Yeah. And uh, CJ McCollum for, I mean, he's been just so much better this year. He's an above average defender. Now he's really uh, smart and he's really strong. So he can't get posted up a lot by bigger twos. He, you know, he can get through screens better. And that's been awesome to watch. And Dame is a really good team defender. Uh, there's some individual matchups that certainly still give him problems. And, you know, his pick and roll defense is not always great. But I've loved his effort this year. And I just loved his his team defense. He knows where to be. And he's usually in the right spot. Just sometimes he'll just, you know, lose out to a better offensive player. But both of them have improved defensively. And it's a huge reason why they've taken such a jump to seventh in the league on defense. Dame's defensive issues, I don't think have ever really been about effort because he always tries on that end. Yes. Unlike some other star point guards who we don't really need to name, but his defensive awareness has been questionable at times. And that's something that certainly looked a lot better this year. And ultimately when you know that Dame's going to put the effort out there every night, it's more about him just finding a way to improve his defensive IQ. And that's been much better this season, certainly than in the past. Oh, for sure. I mean, he, I mean, you're right. It used to be his biggest weakness and a lot of times he would just get, cooked on that end by simply being out of possession but I mean you look now just where he is all time in the floor he's just so much more aware of what the offense is wanting to do and where he needs to be and it's it's just you can see it's kind of starting to all click for him and come together on that end so from the positives of the wing and guard rotation to the biggest issue which is Evan Turner and That contract made absolutely zero sense to me at the time that Portland signed it, and it somehow looks even worse in hindsight. And the thing that always confused me about that deal is that Evan Turner, when he was at his best in Boston, was someone who you could give the ball to off the bench and who could basically be a semi-point guard and create looks for his teammates and get to the rack despite his lack of a three-point shot. But in Portland, 
you have Dame and CJ and you want the ball in their hands as much as possible. And Evan Turner just doesn't really have much value off the ball offensively. And he's nowhere near a good enough defensive player to make up for it on the other end. No, and I'm with you 100%. Uh, At the time of the signing, I was just like, what is Portland doing, especially for this money? Uh, He's at his best at a backup point guard. And with Portland, you're right, it's either going to be Dame or CJ having the ball in their hands. So now they're just kind of stuck with him because they can't move him because of that contract. So they're starting him now at the three. And look, he's... I mean, defensively, he's probably better than Connaughton, but he can't shoot, and and Turner can still pass a little bit. But, I mean, he can't shoot at all, and, like, teams just ignore him on when he's on offense. Like, it's almost like four on five. Uh, I mean, he still has some NBA skills and value. It just It's just a bad situation that he's in. But I don't know how Portland gets out of it unless they – attach something really juicy to trade him honestly at this point i think they'd have to attach either an incredibly intriguing piece or just look to stretch him because yeah no one in the league is going to want to trade for him on that contract no no one at all it was it was just it was just a bad move from the start a bad fit and now it turner stuck there and portland stuck with him so that's It's not a good situation. Let's move on to a slightly better situation, which is the Mo Harkless situation. And he had a bit of a breakout year last year. And so far this year, he's started most of the games he's played. But do you think his best role is as the starting small forward in Portland? Harkless is interesting. I liked him last year. He had a really good year for them, averaged double digits for the first time in his career, and I believe got his three-point up 35%. And that's really what Portland needs from him is shooting. And this year, that has taken a step down, which has hurt his overall play. And I think Portland was really counting on him taking another step. So that's been disappointing for them. And Harkless uh, he's actually been a little better when he plays as kind of a small ball four, which is interesting. Uh, defensively, I think he's still a solid player. But, uh, I mean, we've talked about this at the three. I I would probably start Connaughton at the three and have Harkless come off the bench. It just uh, – at least until, you know, maybe Harkless gets his shooting up. But right now he's he's hurting the offense – more than he is helping it. It also is worth noting that his minutes have significantly declined since the start of the season. And he started on December 5th, but other than that, he basically was taken out of the starting lineup after that brutal loss to the 76ers that we talked about earlier. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's only averaging around the five or six points a game and Stotts had to make make a change, and I I think it was the right move because Harkless wasn't you know playing well enough to start, and hopefully coming off the bench will can actually be a good thing for him, and he could start getting some of his confidence back and play like he did last year. And I want to close out this section by looking into some potential trades for this team because as we talked about earlier, their front court is overloaded, massively overloaded. They can't get minutes for either of their promising young rookies, and they have Myers Leonard basically tethered to the bench. 
On the other side, Dame and CJ are averaging around 37 minutes a game. And basically the only other potential point guard they have on the roster right now is Shabazz Napier. So do you think Portland should try and find a way to make a move to get additional guard help? Or do you think Napier is good enough in that backup point guard role behind two pretty ball dominant guards in Dame and CJ? Well, Napier definitely deserves credit. I mean, he's so improved this year from last year. Uh, He's been a good shooter. His defense is way better and has definitely made himself into a solid rotation player. But they still need backcourt help, especially, I think, some more passing. They're last in the league in assists, I believe. Not a lot of great passers on the team. My guess is at the deadline, they'll try to trade, you know, one of their frontcourt guys for backcourt help. You know, uh, off, you know, guys like a team that back Corey Joseph from Indiana, maybe they would take a shot at Moody at Denver. Who knows? But I definitely think they're going to try to get one more guard, specifically a guy who can pass well to fill out the rotations. So then I guess the question becomes, who would they look to trade for that extra guard? Because the two players that they'd most like to get rid of in – Leonard and Turner don't really have much value around the rest of the league. And they certainly don't want to give up either Collins or Swanigan, especially this early in their careers. Do you think maybe Vonley might be a trade candidate as someone who's sort of in and out of the rotation, but could provide some value for a team that needs help down low? Yeah, I want to be surprised if Vonley is put on the block. Um, Ed Davis as well. Uh, both are just, you know, rotation guys. And I think both have a fair amount of value so they could get something decent for him, especially Vinelay because he's still young and maybe some team likes him more and feel like they can get more out of him. So I think those guys are definitely on the block. Besides that, I mean, Aminu has value for a contender, but does Portland want to give that up? Harkless's value is low. And then, of course, if they really want to shake things up, that's when they discuss trading either Nurkic or CJ. Another potential possibility, the team does have Wade Baldwin on a two-way contract. And on the one hand, the fact that Memphis let him go after his first year in the league is kind of a troubling sign. But on the other hand, he did have enough talent to be taken with the 17th overall pick. And given Portland's lack of guard depth, do you think they consider bringing him up for a trial run at some point later in the season? For sure. He's a former first-round pick, and they they just need an extra guard. It'll, it'll obviously depend on how the season's going at that point, but uh, I think he's most definitely worth another look and a, a fresh start after it didn't work out in uh, Memphis. All right, let's move on to talking about the outlook for the future before we wrap up. And I want to start with the future of this season, namely – Portland's chances of locking up a playoff seed. And in particular, given that Portland is currently sitting at fifth in the Western Conference, do you think they have a shot at home court advantage and the four seed? Because it seems like the top three seeds are pretty much locked in at this point. Yeah, I think the the top three are definitely locked in for sure. Uh, Portland certainly has a shot, but I would bet against it. I think they're more likely to finish seventh or eighth seed. A uh, couple reasons: one, their strength, their schedule is pretty brutal. More toward the second half of the season, 
And I think teams like OKC and Minnesota will start getting it together a little bit more. Uh, Den- I mean, Portland's caught a lot of breaks with other Western teams getting hurt. Uh, the Clippers and Memphis had so many injuries that just derailed their seasons. Uh, I would put Denver ahead of Portland as well. So I think Portland will be either seven or eight with a team like Utah or New Orleans. And in sort of a similar vein, if you think Portland's going to be somewhere around the seventh or eighth seed, do you think they're going to have a better record than their 41 and 41 mark last year? Do you think it's going to be right around the same place? I think it's right around the same place, somewhere in the the 41 to 45 wins. I just think that's the ceiling of this team. I think they're just too inconsistent offensively to have anything higher. And uh, trades could obviously change that, but as of now, I think it's the 41 to 45 win range. I would agree with you, but I think it might be somewhere closer to 43 to 45. But there are two sides to the coin of the Blazers at this point, which is on the one hand, it just doesn't seem like they're going to finish the season in the bottom half of the league offensively. But on the other hand, their strong defense to start the year also seems like it's a pretty good candidate to regress towards the latter half of the season. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, both will kind of end up averaging around an average defense or maybe slightly above or an average offense and slightly below. And when you get that, that usually equals a team that wins about 43 games. So let's talk about their playoff chances. And this sort of ties back to the home court advantage question as well, because I think if Portland can manage to work their way into the four seed, they have a decent chance at least of advancing to the second round of the playoffs. But if they do end up falling to the seventh or eighth seed, I just think whichever of Golden State or Houston they end up playing is going to absolutely blow them out of the water. But what are your thoughts on Portland's chances of advancing beyond the first round of the playoffs? Yeah, so if they're a seven or an eight, like I I think, or you will, um, they're they're going to get blown out of the water by either Golden State or Houston. Uh, you know, San Antonio maybe they can get one, but they'll lose that as well. So if they want any chance of winning a playoff series, it's going to be have to be the four or five, and they're probably going to have to get the four. And maybe then they could beat a team like Minnesota, who's still young. But I would definitely, I would bet against them winning a playoff series this year. I would definitely agree with you on that front. The one other interesting thought on that is that if they end up playing Denver, I think it would be really fun to see what Yusuf Nurkic does to the Denver Nuggets in a playoff series. Ooh, that would be very fun. That would, yes, I would definitely love that series to happen for sure. I'd probably still pick Denver though. <laughs> yeah. Well, Denver's done this well without Paul Millsap. So, well, not without, but without him right. for at least the last month. So they have a little bit more room to improve, I think, than the Trailblazers do. Yes, I just think their ceiling's a little bit higher when they're all locked in. All right, so before we wrap up, I wanted to do a quick theoretical exercise and 
look ahead to see what this team might look like in 2020. And given that the Blazers have two guards in their mid-20s that are the obvious stars of the team, I think it'll be interesting to see what the Blazers do over the next couple of seasons around the two of them. But do you think that Dame and CJ are both going to be in Portland for the long haul? Or do you think that the team looks maybe to trade one of them, presumably CJ? Well, this is what makes Portland, you know, so interesting. And why I think they're just an eye to keep on at the deadline in this offseason because they kind of have to ask themselves the big, how long do we want to be a 45-win team? And last year they were 41 and the year before 44 – so they kind of been an average team for a few years now, not just one, but they've given up picks. They're in a tough spot financially. So the best way out of it may be trading CJ. My guess is by 2020, he is gone and uh, Portland decides to rhyme with Dame. I would guess Nurkic is gone too. If I had to pick, probably in 20, only Dame, Collins, and probably Swanigan are still there, you know, for sure. And... I hate to even bring this up, but Evan Turner's contract also runs through the 2019-2020 season, so he's probably still going to be around too. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Okay, he, he will still be there too. I forgot that it was that long. Oh, that's brutal. All right. On that happy note, <laughs> anything else before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think we, we covered everything Blazers. It was a good podcast. Well, he is Evan Dial. You can find him on Twitter at E-V-A-N-D-Y-A-L. You can find his writing on the hashtag basketball website, and you can also find his audio work on the hashtag Hornets podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and my written work is also on the hashtag basketball website. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or via email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Listening.